0: Hi, this is Azimuth World Foundation's podcast, Connecting the Dots. With the help of our guests, we will be connecting the dots between matters of access to public health and safe water and the balance between humankind and nature among indigenous and rural communities. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Connecting the Dots. My name is Mariana Marks and I'm the Executive Director of Anthem Foundation. In 2016, on April 28th, Congress passed the National Bison Legacy Act, which would lead to bison being named the U.S. National Mammal. The act recognizes the historical, cultural, and economic importance of bison and how this species stands as a symbol of unity, resilience, and healthy landscapes and communities. The bison is a prime example of the importance of promoting a balanced relationship between humankind and nature, which is one of our pillars at Asimov's World Foundation. The new extinction of the bison in the 19th century is essential to understanding the history of the United States. In the intersection of the devastating past of the bison and the hopeful future we can now envision for the species, lie the present efforts to conserve the bison, and restore its tribal lands. And so we couldn't be happier to have Jason Balls as our guest here today. As the Tribal Buffalo Program Manager at the National Wildlife Federation and a board member of the Intertribal Buffalo Council, Jason has been dedicated to the conservation, restoration, and cultural revitalization of the Bison. He's a member of the Eastern Shoshone tribe from the Wind, in- Wind River Indian Reservation in Wyoming where many wild bison are grown as a result of the initiatives he has led. Having Jason with us is truly a unique opportunity to grasp the cultural and scientific significance of sharing the world with the bison. So, Jason, hello. Thank you so much and welcome to uh, Connecting the Dots.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, Any chance to talk about buffalo is a good day.
0: Good. So, Jason, I would start, you know, asking you. So, growing up, what are your memories of hearing about the bison? Do you remember how the story or stories impacted your, your childhood?
1: Sure. My my father was a biologist, and so he uh, worked to restore other species to the reservation, uh, such as the pronghorn antelope and bighorn sheep, which were extirpated prior to 1984. Um, so growing up uh, we were hunters uh fishermen we camped a lot and so spending out time outside and outdoors was uh, a priority because that was how we uh, have always lived with the, the landscape with the animals there's a relationship there's a reciprocity that's our our food source so hunting elk and deer and uh, the other species once we're the the pronghorn and bighorn sheep were restored. Even hunted them. Um, we always talked about, you know, how come we can't hunt buffalo or bison? And uh, so, it's always kind of been in the back of my my mind, always growing up that this animal was missing. And as I as I grew older and had more of a cultural connection, uh, spirituality connection, uh, buffalo is is also a big component of that so uh to restore the animal is not only about the ecological integrity uh, of of a Keystone species and its role on the landscape but also the the cultural reconnection uh nutritional re- reconnection of buffalo in our diet and in our lives again is very important for our future
0: it's, it's, it's difficult to have of course a, a brief answer uh, to to this question but, What are some of the ways, and you just already mentioned, you know, uh, some that in which the history of Native American people is connected to the history of bison?
1: So the the bison was life's commissary for many Native tribes, not only the Eastern Shoshone, but many other Great Plains tribes who relied on the animal for uh, not only food, but clothing from its its skin, uh, shelter also from its hide. Uh, the tools and things that we, we needed to live uh, came from the animal was like our store. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the tools that came from the bones, uh, the the sinew, the, the horn, the hide, the hair, uh, the hooves, all of the components of a buffalo had a use. And, you know, the stomach itself was used as a cooking vessel before pots and pans so for thousands of years we had this uh mutual um relationship with with buffalo and you know we use that term interchangeably too we know that bison is the scientific term but buffalo is more commonly used Mm -hmm. in our native communities many of our tribal families have buffalo in their name so uh the animal has been missing for about 130 years but that's really a small window of time in terms of the millennia that it's part of our genetic makeup. Uh, it's in our DNA. And so as we restore the animal to our communities to the landscape in its rightful place, then uh, the healing in, in, in essence can can begin. The buffalo heals the land as a keystone species. it promotes plant and animal biodiversity of uh, the physiological behavior of uh, wallowing, very important on for for landscape and ecological change. They uh, uh you know so so as they get restored to the landscape they become more available to to us as people uh to use so appropriate field harvests where we, we do a field kill and and uh you know through prayer and through ceremony and then we engage our youth and our elders in that uh, process to relearn you know how we use that animal from the hoof up and how all of those parts are are utilized again so that we can uh, reconnect our people with not only eating them but having tools and things that they want or and haven't had access to for uh, again 130 years so as you know, since this Buffalo has been restored since 2016, we've been able to get the animal back into the community. We've had, uh, lots of our tribal youth here to visit and see the Buffalo, uh, and engage and connect and, uh, re- revive that blood memory, that genetic memory that that's in there, uh, to, to, to have that, um, reconnection with the Buffalo. So as, uh, we're able to acquire mm-hmm. more land uh, to uh, get more animals and then change land use priority for Buffalo uh, as opposed to cattle because mm-hmm. cattle was promoted and uh, encouraged on, on tribal lands as part of colonization. Mm-hmm. So, you know, undoing some of those imposed systems to make it feasible for Buffalo to exist on, on larger landscapes. So we have to undo some of what's been done in order to make this possible, and it takes tribal leadership uh, to support this effort. So I'm very thankful for uh, the Shoshone and the Arapaho tribes to uh, continue to um, support this effort to get more buffalo and more land uh, changed and protected for for the species. Thank you, Jason. And uh, it
0: also would be interesting, you know, to. You know, to understand how did you, when did you started, you know, to be part of this project? How did you transition from, you know, from being interested in bison and, of course, the relationship that uh, you have with the bison to now working in restoring the bison to tribal lands? how, How that happened?
1: Yeah, so I became very interested in in bison restoration after I took a trip to East Africa and witnessed the wildebeest in uh, the Serengeti and the Maasai Mara. That realization that the bison uh, was in much greater number here than than even what the wildebeest is. uh. So to see one and a half million wildebeest on the landscape, well, you can't see that many, but to see as many as I did, and to realize that the wildebeest is less than 5% of what the bison was here, less than 200 years ago, really had a, a, an impact on me. And so as I returned home, I wanted to understand more about our own history.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and then I I focused on uh, academics. I know I needed to have a, a science background to open up, to give me the academic credentials needed to open doors Mm -hmm. or larger tribal buffalo restoration. So I focused uh, my undergraduate and graduate degrees at Montana State University in land resource sciences. This gave me a a multidisciplinary approach to understanding uh, more about food sovereignty, uh, about the ecological importance of bison, uh, understanding nutrient cycling and soil remediation, and, and these courses that gave me uh, a, a nice, well-rounded background into what buffalo restoration could could be. Uh, in 2009, the Shoshone Tribe passed a tribal law uh, supporting the return of buffalo to the reservation for the tribe. That was right during my transition from my undergraduate to graduate degree, mm-hmm. and so I focused my my um, my studies and my research around. Uh, the potential for uh, Buffalo restoration to the Wind River Reservation. As an undergraduate, I wrote a draft management plan for for what it may look like, and then moved right into uh, an ecological study for my graduate work. Um, I was uh, fairly deep into my research and and became uh, more affiliated with the National Wildlife Federation their tribal partnerships program mm-hmm. had historically had some relationship with the tribes here at Wind River in fighting the, for the water rights case, and so uh, my father also served on the on the board of directors of the federation for a number of years and and worked to really establish a tribal program, and so uh, my my background and my history with with the understanding of the water rights case as well as moving towards Buffalo Restoration to Wind River, uh, the Federation recognized it as an opportunity to, to not only empower me a bit to, to continue the work I had started through academia, but to continue it in my community here once I was done with my graduate work. Um, so when I graduated with my master's degree, it was also the same year that we restored the first 10. So in 2016, I defended my thesis and then attend Buffalo arrived for the first, the first batch. And we've restored, um, you know, additional conservation genetics or reputable lineage, uh, to, to our herd for, you know, for, from four other sources since then. So, uh, the two tribes now have, uh, herds of Buffalo and the intent is to really combine, uh, our two herds under the, uh, protection of um buffalo as wildlife under tribal law mm-hmm. and so we're working to get uh buffalo included in that game code that was passed in 1984 um so that the, the species is not considered livestock but is mm-hmm. considered wildlife similar to the pronghorn antelope and bighorn sheep and the other ungulate species that we have here on this reservation so uh um, really the uh you know have set up a nonprofit as well called the Wind River Tribal Buffalo Initiative and that is to continue to uh work to reconnect our, our youth and community to Buffalo but um also as a mechanism to acquire more land uh because many of these lands that our that buffalo are on are are on lands that were privatized
2: mm-hmm. when
1: the reservation was opened up for homesteading back in the 1880s, 1890s and 1900s. So the reservations uh, in the West were opened up for agricultural production to non-Native people. And that brought domestication, that brought livestock, that brought the exploitation of resources. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of foreign notions to uh, a traditionally held belief system here, which is more about uh, an importance for biodiversity. The plants and animals and the abundance of those is where the health and wealth of our communities was prior to colonization. And so restoring some of that holistic worldview around these species and around our land use and management is very important and has a lot of, uh, you know, buffalo restoration has a lot of implications in that.
0: Mm And, um, you know, talking a little bit more about the bison restoration, you know, not not everybody, you know, understands, you know, the connection between, you know, the bison restoration and healthy ecosystems. So if you could explain a little bit more about that, the role that the bison has.
1: Sure. Sure. So when Lewis and Clark came West in 1804, what they witnessed was 30 to 60 million bison. Mm-hmm. By 1902, there were less than a thousand left on the continent, just under two dozen in Yellowstone. And so the, the bison was nearly exterminated from the landscape. <clears throat> of course, this when the bison was nearly exterminated and native tribes were forced onto reservations, then it made way for these large beef operations, and many of those are still in existence. And uh, you hear often the argument that that cattle replaced the mm-hmm. ecological role uh, of bison, and that is that is just not true, mm-hmm. because bison have uh, uh, physiological adaptations, behavioral uh, adaptations that make them very important as a keystone species. Mm-hmm. So the as a keystone species, that means that they they are very important to many other organisms: mammals, birds, uh, insects, reptiles, butterflies. So also many plant species, because bison are primarily graminoid feeders, so they eat the grasses, and they uh, uh, allow for the production of, of of more forbs, and the forb species are often. Sp- those that are are considered foods and tools and medicines to native people. So not only was the buffalo changing the uh, or changed the environment that was more favorable to other organisms, it was even uh, favorable to, to plant species that were favorable to us as human beings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And buffalo have seven times the hair per square inch as a cow does. And so every winter they put on a new coat. Very thick Mm fur, and in the springtime they lose all that winter coat, and that hair becomes extremely important for birds. Some of which uh, need buffalo hair for their eggs to reach the right incubation temperature. Uh, So you see an increase in uh, bird species. Uh, They have twice the surface area on their teeth, so at certain times of the year they can eat less desirable species Mm if, if it's say a drought or uh, uh or there's there's you know foods that uh, are not not in their normal diet. they can digest them. They uh, can slow their metabolism in the winter so that they uh, utilize less energy. They can survive on snow. They don't need help giving birth. Uh, they they are very well adapted to uh, climatic conditions. So if we would talk about climate change, and the susceptibility of say livestock to uh, extreme heat uh, or extreme cold, uh, buffalo have physiological adaptations that allow them to survive that even when they're very young. When they're born, it takes them two minutes before they stand up, and seven minutes they can run. So they they are very strong and very uh, strong-willed uh, critters. And historically, they they lived from uh, the West Coast, nearly all the way to the East Coast, from the Arctic to Mexico, and from sea level all the way to 13,000 feet in elevation. So they were very well adapted to almost every ecological niche that that is here. And so uh, the 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 problem is is politically, it's very difficult to um, recognize them as uh, as a. As a as a wildlife species and allow them to exist as such. Mm -hmm. Most of, you know, much of the United States has been plowed up, paved over, fenced in and fenced out. And so there's very few places that are left that aren't uh, colonized by Mm -hmm. people. And so we have to ensure that the species has the ability to exist uh, on large landscapes in large numbers. Buffalo right now are ecologically extinct. They exist in parks and refuges and private ranches and they don't exist like wildlife in very many places. And in fact, some states have passed legislation uh, to only consider them livestock like Montana. And oh. so it makes it very difficult to restore them to the landscape in their rightful place mm-hmm. uh, unless we start with tribes because tribal lands uh, are safe havens, are 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 places Absolutely. that uh, have been less colonized, uh, uh, not that they haven't been, but mm-hmm. they're less so. Yes. And so the uh, the changes are, are much more uh, probably possible
2: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, feasible, starting with tribal lands, then set precedent for maybe what can happen on public lands. hmm
0: Jason, you you were mentioning that you know Montana. Past this, this long exact that looks to the bison as livestock. Why does that happen?
1: Why well kind of goes back to the uh you know the West was one notion that mm. the buffalo were eliminated and tribes were on reservations. Yes. The problems were out of the way, so to speak. That made way for these large beef operations that are still in existence. You hear about the fourth or fifth generation ranchers. Mm-hmm. Well, those are the ranchers that are really the ones who acquired the land when the buffalo and Indians were removed. Mm-hmm. so those families, that ranching ethic, that lifestyle, that cowboy way mm-hmm. well, that's what most people are in the west mm-hmm. the the emblem in the state of Wyoming is a cowboy
2: mm-hmm.
1: the 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 cowboy mentality and the 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 uh, you know that is that is something that's embraced by many people,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so that's in the politics. That's in elected leaders.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so the stock growers, the Farm Bureau, the cattle associations, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. ranching community, yeah, many are many are adamantly opposed to mm-hmm. uh, buffalo restoration or tribal sovereignty. They kind of go hand in hand.
2: Yes. Because tribes have
1: to exercise sovereignty in order to restore bison. And that's against the status quo. That's against the, the paradigm that has been established here, mm-hmm. the cowboy ethic. And so when we talk about land use change, it's a paradigm shift to re- retire grazing permits for cattle because that's been done for 130 years. To some, that's that's a legacy yes. to others like myself that's a small window of time where things were messed mm-hmm. up and to restore it means we have to change the paradigm take some fences down and mm-hmm. decolonize land use
0: and one of the things that sometimes we hear is that you know people always talk about diseases you know they're afraid of the bison because of disease and i think it's important Jason, if you could help, you know, um, to refute that, right? To refute that argument, also, of the disease.
1: Almost all of the diseases that are here now were brought by cattle uh, and pioneers and settlers when they came west Mm -hmm. uh, that infected the wildlife. And so, you know, when there were buffalo that were eliminated, and then cattle and sheep and goats and all these domestic livestock came in, they brought diseases that, Were transferred over to the wildlife. Uh, There's like 20-some strains of pneumonia uh, that came from domestic sheep that is transmissible to bighorn sheep. There used to be millions of bighorn sheep as well. Uh, Cattle brought things like anthrax and tuberculosis Mm -hmm. tuberculosis, Mm -hmm. uh, that infected uh, elk and buffalo. Uh, So most of the diseases that that are here were brought with colonization. And, you know, as the buffalo herd in Yellowstone grew, uh, it kind of came to contention around 1997 uh, when animals were looking to leave the park for, for winter forage. And they stepped outside of that imaginary boundary of Yellowstone. And... They were met with an onslaught of, of fire uh, bullets because once they stepped outside of the boundary, uh, they were considered a threat to the livestock industry because mm-hmm. of brucellosis. Yes. And mm-hmm. so organizations like National Wildlife Federation and the Intertribal Buffalo Council proposed a quarantine process so that we could certify disease free animals and get them out of the park alive. Mm-hmm. 60 percent of the bison in Yellowstone are going to test positive for brucellosis or antibodies for brucellosis. Mm-hmm. This means they die. Uh, that means there's 40 percent of the animals that we could potentially get out alive. So the Fort Peck tribes, for instance, have received over 300 Yellowstone animals so that they can supplement their population and help get those genetics out to other mm-hmm. other tribes. Those are certified disease-free, Buffalo. Once they go through that quarantine, so the goal is to increase or expand the uh, uh, ability of the Park Service to to get more animals out alive. The tribes have a role to play in that. Um, we're still met with uh, quite a bit of opposition from the livestock industry. Uh, states like Montana that are currently anti-buffalo, not Montana, the administration of Montana that's anti-buffalo.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There's uh, there's also currently a disease called mycoplasma bovis that comes from cattle. If it gets into a buffalo population, it'll kill uh, a quarter of your population. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to mitigate some of these diseases that come from cattle uh, is also a challenge because for the most part, the narrative is these diseased buffalo. I gotta protect my cows, but it, it should be the other way around. This is a these buffalo uh are conservation buffalo. There's very few of those. There's very few buffalo that exist that outside of the park that live naturally. And so the narrative needs to change. Well, we need to protect buffalo from livestock and livestock, especially, that has mycoplasma. And there really, there isn't a a vaccine for that currently. And so that cattle disease threatens the buffalo restoration efforts across the nation in in many of our tribal communities. It hasn't been, um, it's not prevalent yet in any of our tribal buffalo herds that I'm aware of today. Um, but it is spreading, and uh, it, we don't really know what to uh, what to do with it scientifically, other than keep animals uh, separate. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, thank you, Jason. Do um, you feel that people are paying more attention to the restoring of the bison because it is so important, not only for the ecosystem, to to you know. To, as food sovereignty also for the, the Native American communities.
1: Yeah the we've we have um, started to uh, get the buffalo back into our our diet and so the uh, Shoshone tribe hosts uh, uh, a language reunion every year and so just a couple of weeks ago we we had uh we, we harvested one of our bulls. And we um, had several summer school students here and elders, while we processed that animal, and then uh, we we took that to uh, one of my relatives who cooked it in the ground, and so we fed over 250 people with that buffalo for our Shoshone language reunion. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a curriculum that we're developing too that will uh, be able to use in the schools, and um, we'll be able to. Uh, you know, I, I just see it growing. There's a lot of uh, momentum around it here, mm-hmm. locally. Now uh, people are coming to see the animals nearly every day, and so um, I would say that that most certainly the community support and engagement is uh, increasing uh, exponentially. I think that this has a, so much potential uh, for our our communities and for our land. Uh, to really do some cool stuff. So things are really good.
0: Cool. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, for children and, you know, uh, for, you know, uh, teenagers, you know, it, I'm sure the impact of knowing more about the bias and the relationship, you know, touching, you know, hearing, seeing him move, uh, you know, hearing the stories, and but also being there and seeing it, it must have a profound impact, right?
1: yeah the um you know eight hundred tribal youth have been here in the last this summer to see the the buffalo and um there is definitely a a change when uh when I when the teachers tell me they get back to school or they get back home uh parents you know let me know at community events that you know the the impact that it had on their kids and uh, it it is it is certainly um certainly time people are ready people are ready for this
0: you know bison was designated as the national mammal in uh, 2016. you know in the in the past weeks you know we've been reading you know in bigger in big media outlets like washington post and, and other media that they've been fortunately reporting about the ecological victory of that indigenous tribes, you know, uh, are having regarding restoring the bison, you know, to the tribal lands. We were also, you know, as the Foundation was also part of the Bismarck States College, uh, Dakota's Bison Symposium in North Dakota, where we had, you know, all sorts of guests from, we include tribal leaders, tribal elders, historians, scientists, ranchers, artists, they all shared, you know, different perspectives of the bison restoration, which was wonderful, you know, to have that that conversation and, and that discussion. You know, having in mind this growing interest on this topic, how do you see the future of the bison in the United States? You know, how do you see it like what we would you like to see in 10 20 years from now you know uh
1: well i don't i don't think we'll see 60 million bison roam oh, yeah. freely in the united states um that that's just un- unreasonable uh, however there are many pockets of places left uh, where buffalo can exist in large numbers on large landscapes to effectively make ecological change and benefit You know, if we think about climate resiliency, we should be talking about Buffalo. If we wanna talk about carbon storage and sequestration, it should be Buffalo because it is a a keystone species on the landscape. More often than not, we focus on the economic uh, incentives from the use of public lands. We're focused on oil and gas development and exploitation and if we would instead think more ecologically or holistically about what we want to leave for our future for the future uh, for our children's children uh then then we we should be able to uh re re-prioritize really what's important is it is it the dollar really or or is it actually you know the 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 place that we live and the the, the interconnectedness and the ecological balance uh, you know, money has no place in that, and we have to. That's a paradigm shift in itself to to think ecologically rather than economically. Mm-hmm. So, so um you know, I would hope that there is more effort to conserve the Yellowstone genetics, that mm-hmm. we restore buffalo as a uh, as a wildlife species and protect it as such. You know, there's there's a there's less than twenty five thousand conservation buffalo in the United States that have the Yellowstone lineage or genetics, and that are managed under natural regulating factors. Ninety five percent of the buffalo in the United States, about five hundred thousand of them, uh, are managed for commercial meat production. They're, that's that's economic, and so uh there are also high levels of cattle gene introgression in the bison genome and so again these less than 25,000 conservation animals should have priority uh over the 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 economic benefit of getting buffalo into the american food system mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh that's just commercialization and commodification and so uh, again the the dollar so what we want to focus on here is is not not the economic importance of Buffalo, the ecological and the cultural importance of this keystone species back into our, our culture, into our diet, into our lives again. And that has as much historical importance as it does contemporary. This animal is very important uh, to all of our people uh, today.
0: Thank you so much, Jason. You know, um I think this was a, a very important conversation. You know, we thank you so very much for being part of our podcast today, and you know, giving some time to explain the importance for the Native uh, American communities to the to the ecosystem, to the to landscape. Jason, I don't want if you I don't know if you would like to share some final words. Uh, but for my part, I really, really thank you for your time today.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity to to visit with you. You know, this buffalo is um, is very, very important not only as to to us as Native people, but to uh, all Americans. And so, mm-hmm. the more that people know about this and can share it and spread the word and and think about the paradigm shift about uh, our connection as human beings to uh, what we refer to as our relatives—the the four-legged, the winged ones, the ones that swim, the ones that fly, the the ones above and below the ground—these are all the things that we we live here with, and that's why we refer to them as our relatives. So I would just encourage our our listeners and viewers to uh, to consider your role as a steward, as a caretaker, and a protector of of this place that we have and we call home. And I just want to thank you again for for the opportunity to visit with you. Thanks. Thank you
0: so much. Thank you for listening to Connecting the Dots, an Azimuth World Foundation podcast. Join the conversation on our website, azimuthworldfoundation.org, or by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn.